Welcome to Season 7 of American Political History, The Dominion of New England, a tour of wayward colonies. The Massachusetts Bay had been ignoring or circumventing the Navigation Acts for years. In 1677, the Lords of Trade, one of the most powerful committees within Whitehall, demanded that the Massachusetts Bay Colony send agents to London to discuss their insubordination of the Navigation Acts along with their activities denying the rightful proprietors of New Hampshire and Maine their rights to govern their colonies. In the hearing in London, the Lord's Chief Justice rejected Massachusetts' claim that their courts had jurisdiction over the territories of Maine and New Hampshire. As more testimony of the Bay's insolence of the King's authority surfaced, the Lords of Trade used this to question the validity of the Massachusetts Bay Charter, which might have been their goal in the first place. Their focus became Boston's lack of the required enforcement of the Navigation Acts and the colony's failure to require the oath of allegiance to the King of England. The Lords of Trade concluded this hearing by suggesting to the King that a royal customs officer should be appointed to New England to oversee any irregularities of the application of the Navigation Acts. They also ruled that the Massachusetts Bay Charter had a proper territorial boundary and the colony was expected to stay within it. Given that Boston was making open claims of independence from the crown, their continued failure to give the oath of allegiance to their king, and their continual encroachment on their neighboring colonies, overall the bay came out of this inquiry rather unscathed. But the Puritan public was obstinate. They did not take this leniency from their king as a signal to draw back their actions. The Bay continued to bypass both the Navigation Acts and failed to give the oath of allegiance to their political officers. In 1679, the Crown's appointed customs collector, Edward Randolph, was set to oversee New England. In a signal clearly intended to send a message to Boston, Edward Randolph would first arrive in New Hampshire to inaugurate the new government there, free from the Bay's authority. Then he traveled to Boston, where he would begin enforcing the Navigation Acts and seizing property of anyone that violated them. There had always been royal customs officials in New England. What was new was that the Crown had appointed their man to this post, loyal to Whitehall not loyal to local colonial authorities. Edward Randolph was also monitoring Boston in general and reporting any failures to live up to Whitehall's expectations back to London. In 1684, Whitehall, tired of waiting on the many excuses from the Bay as to why the Massachusetts Bay Colony had not returned their charter to London as ordered half a decade before, petitioned the High Court Chancellery for a writ of dissolution for the Massachusetts Bay Charter. Oddly, after dissolving the charter, Whitehall had no specific plan in place on what to do with the colony, leaving the colony in limbo to be ran by the same authorities that had just been stripped of their charter rights. It seemed that these actions were simply punitive. In Virginia, Already a royal colony, Whitehall sent Lord Culpepper, who notified the colony's assembly that it could only meet with consent of the king's governor, 
and that it could only consider passing legislation which Whitehall itself had already reviewed and approved. He then gave the Assembly two sets of instructions directly from Whitehall. First, they were to issue a general pardon and settle any outstanding disputes left from Bacon's rebellion. Whitehall wanted the colony back to the business of being productive. They had little interest in continued local disputes. Second, the Assembly was to pass a new, permanent, two-cent-per-hogshead duty on exports of tobacco, which was to be owed to the Crown. But the Virginia Assembly didn't take all of this lying down. They maneuvered underneath Lord Culpepper's authority. Convincing him not to publicly deliver Whitehall's rebuke of the Virginia colonists for their behavior in, you know, revolting. And as soon as the Crown's overseers were out of the colony, they simply started initiating and passing legislation of their own. When this was questioned, they simply responded that it was out of necessity, on the grounds that the distance and time between London was unworkable because the urgency of most issues they handled, it was more productive for the colonies to legislate out the day-to-day dealings. It was, it was really nothing Whitehall needed to worry itself about. Then, the Virginia Assembly decided that the king had already been paid the new duty on tobacco for the last 20 years, and that those revenues had simply been diverted from Whitehall by the king's authority into the development of the Virginia colony. Therefore, no increase in taxation was needed. Was Whitehall really asking Virginia to stop investing in its future? Wasn't the crown's best interest served for that tax revenue from the colony to be reinvested into Virginia's future? In New York, society was languishing. Jersey had simply been given up, and New York... His namesake had been given nothing in return for some of the best lands of his colony. But more threatening to New York's future was the rise of the maritime ports of Boston and Philadelphia. When the complaints of the merchants based out of New York fell on deaf ears of the New York government, many of those merchants would decide to pick up and start anew in Philadelphia, where they were warmly welcomed by the city's authorities. In the north, Boston was enjoying newly minted contracts for direct shipping with the merchants of London. And New York's petition to Whitehall to oversee their rival's enforcement of the Navigation Acts had been unheard. New York's economy was now reliant on just a few industries. The fur trade from Albany was becoming less and less profitable because of the low-cost furs coming out of Delaware and Pennsylvania. Trade with the West Indies, which was now non-competitive, with the London merchants, because New York merchants cooperated with the Navigation Acts and were forced to ship all of their goods back to London before shipping them to the West Indies. New York was becoming an economic dependent of the harbors of Boston and Philadelphia. Most goods you would find in New York were shipped from those other colonies, instead of being directly shipped into New York from London. This was all compounded, because the New Netherlands had never invested into successful settlements throughout the colony. This limited the production of rents as income for the government of New York. This had led New York's revenue to be almost solely dependent on the excise taxes of the port. And as shipping directly to New York was stalling out, so had the income for the colonial government. 
The New York government responded to this by forming monopolistic organizations to handle specific types of trade so that it could ensure that it was paid all of its proper taxes. This idea of guilds or monopolies was rooted within Dutch management of New Amsterdam, which had already distributed monopoly rights throughout the colony. But unlike the days past of New Amsterdam, New York was in a different world with close competitive port cities you could just ship into. New York's implementation of these monopoly rights simply angered all of the neighboring settlements around New York City and within the New York colony. They were the only ones forced to pay these extra costs. So Governor Andros started experimenting by carving out more tax exemptions. But if everyone was getting tax exemptions from these excise taxes, the New York government still faced the same revenue shortages, and the monopolies themselves were ineffective unless New York captured all of the neighboring ports immediately around it. By 1674, New York turned back once again to authoritarian demands of its neighbors. Viewing Jersey as a barrier to the success of these monopoly policies, New York started acting as if its laws and authority superseded that of Jersey. Governor Andros made some concessions with Governor Philip Carteret of New Jersey. They agreed to an alignment of policy on trade. Andros received a tightening on the monopoly which he was seeking, and Carteret received equal standing politically, as this was an agreement between peers. But in West Jersey, the Quaker side of the colony, these trade policies faced severe opposition. John Fenwick, who was the leader of the largest settlement in West Jersey, promptly warned New York that no ship taking harbor to Newcastle would pay New York's duties, and that there cannot be a resolution with New York's attempted political capture of West Jersey. When Governor Carteret saw that the political opposition to New York was backed by most of the population in Jersey, he immediately pivoted and declared in 1679 that the East Jersey ports would be free to shipping without payment to New York's customs or taxes. Governor Andros then charged Governor Carteret with the unlawful use of jurisdiction power over trade policy. In the spring of 1680, New York courts tried the governor of New Jersey. The jury acquitted Carteret, but Governor Andros had won politically by the very fact that the governor of Jersey was tried for trade policy in New York courts showed to everyone that New York courts had superseding powers over the Jersey colonies. Governor Andros and his appointed justices now assumed practical legal control over the colony of East Jersey. Unfortunately for Andros and his political coup of Jersey, he was recalled to London that same year, where he was accused of the misadministration of the New York colony's finances, serious charges that would all later be cleared. All of this political maneuvering over the ports surrounding New York was in vain. In 1680, the Duke of York relinquished all claims he had to New Jersey, ending New York's claim for legal authority over New Jersey. It is not known exactly why the Duke of York took this action. The probable reason is that by giving Jersey to powerful political figures in England, he hoped to clear the path for his ascension to the throne of England, which had to go through Parliament, who wished to block his ascension. Jersey was likely given freely as a political payoff. After all, why would the future king of England care about the personal claim to a specific colony when he would soon be ruling over all English subjects? Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. 
Thank you again, and until next time.